The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord plant my feet on higher ground, Lord lift me up and let me stand, a gleam of glory bright, but still I'll pray till heaven I found, Lord lead me on to higher ground. have somehow accepted the belief that we must always strive for higher ground, but we never achieve it. And so we've come to believe in our day that the Christian walk is one of constant struggling against the sin that so easily besets us. And sometimes we have the victory, and most of the times we don't. And so in the culture of America, a Christian sins and repents, sins and repents, always wanting to go to higher ground, but never getting there. I have a problem with that. I don't find that in Scripture. Now, I want to share a story with you, and Alexandra is with me also in the studio. I want to share a story with you a very familiar story but as I read it this last time I began to see things that I'd never seen before I began to see things that weren't there that I've always put in and they're just not there I want to challenge you today to begin to read the scriptures 
for exactly what they say. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away. What is the gospel? Well, the modern American definition of gospel as simply good news is a false definition. That's not the biblical definition of what gospel means. And so, frankly, for many of you, the gospel is bad news. It means a life of striving and struggling, and or it means you accept the lie that Jesus forgave all of your past, present, and future sins at the cross, and so you're free now to walk in your sin, but you want the rewards, so you'll repent and struggle and go to classes and take seminars and do strategies to succeed. What if we just drop everything except what the Word says? Drop everybody's interpretation. Just take the Scripture for what it says. That's a strange idea, isn't it? To let the Scripture speak for itself. Well, in this story, let's get started. And you're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel, and with me is Alexandria. Welcome. So let's go after this. It's found in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we begin to see the first glimpses of this very, very angry man as Stephen is being murdered. He is being stoned to death. It is a horrible death. It is ugly. It is visceral. And they're laying their coats at the feet of this man, Saul. And he's approving of the, of the murder of this man, Stephen. Now, he's a very powerful young man. He sits on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Israel. He's educated, graduate degree from Gamaliel, the best-known and highest-regarded teacher of that day. He's probably very wealthy. He is acting in the role of special prosecutor, police. And so he watches as this man is killed, and he is full of rage and anger against the people of the way. He wants to destroy it. It's interesting that he's not angry at the high priest, whom he has the favor of, because the high priest purchased his position. It was not a God-granted position. He bought it from the Romans. It was a business deal. Not unlike many pastors today who bargain with their churches for the best salary and benefit package possible. Scriptures call them hirelings, people who work for money, hires. Well, this was, this was who Saul was. Now, Saul watches this execution, this murder, and then we get the next picture of him in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. 
Now Saul, still breathing out a threat and murder against the disciples of the Lord, having went to the high priest, he requested letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he may find any being of the way, both men and women, he may bring them to Jerusalem, having been bound. So he's going to go put them in chains and drag them to Jerusalem where they will be tried and executed. He is raging. And so as he's approaching Damascus, a long hike, by the way, not a short trip, and he didn't ride in an air-conditioned car, he no doubt walked. Saul is now approaching Damascus when suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him that is so brilliant it knocks him to the ground and all of those who are with him they're leveled and then this voice speaks and says Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he says who are you Lord he didn't know that Jesus was God And so the encounter begins with Jesus saying, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting my people? And he's saying, Who are you? And the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But you must get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you need to do. Now, what is absent that is surprising to our American mindset, you would think that he would have said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I want to work with you on your anger issues. That's not what Jesus said to him. Saul, you've been persecuting my people. So for the next couple of years, I want you to work on changing your mind and changing your heart. I want to take the flint out of your system. I want to change you and make you like me. No, that's not what Jesus said. He's not going to begin a therapeutic approach, a relational approach with this man. No, he's going to command this man. And obviously, when someone begins to command us, everything of rebellion rises up in our hearts. And it's exposed. Sin is lawlessness. We're going to talk more about that later in the broadcast. Now, the men traveling are speechless. They're all laid out on the ground. They don't understand what the voice just said. But now Saul is helped up from the ground. He opens his eyes and he is blind. And he now, this arrogant, proud, angry, wealthy young man is led by the hand like an invalid into the city. And he's taken to a house where for the next three days he does not eat or drink because everything in his heart is being changed. Everything that he had thought before must now be removed. 
the Holy Spirit is now washing and changing him into a Christian, into a follower of the way. It is not a long process. Conversion is not a long process, although it may take several days of adjusting one's thinking and coming to terms with the reality that I'm of the darkness, I am of Satan, I am not of the Lord God of heaven. Well, that was a startling recognition on the part of of Saul. And so we find in chapter 9, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus, Ananias by name, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, behold, I am here, Lord. The Lord said unto him, Having arisen, you must go to the street, being called straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus, Saul by name. For behold, he is praying. And he saw a man in a vision, Ananias by name, having entered and having put a hand on him that he may see again. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things concerning this man how much evil he did to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And in this place, he's already had authority from the chief priest to bind all the ones calling on your name. But the Lord said to him, you must go, because this man is an instrument of choice for me to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of it. Wait a minute. Why isn't Jesus saying to Ananias, Go to this man, Paul, and lead him through the four steps of salvation and ask him if he's willing to accept me as his personal Savior and tell him God has a wonderful plan for your life and he loves you. That's not what the Lord told Ananias to say. Nowhere in the scripture is that lie given to a new convert. I want you to get that. Jesus did not instruct him to go confront him with his anger and offer him counseling to deal with his arrogance or his lust or his anger. No, when a man comes or a woman comes to Jesus Christ, all they can do is cry out before the throne of mercy in prayer and wait on God and God changes us totally changes us it's a supernatural work of grace it is not a human improvement process it is not humanistic now notice what the Lord says about his plan for the Apostle Paul you must go because this man is an instrument of choice for me to carry my... Did he ask Saul if he was willing to be an instrument of choice? No. No. He didn't do counseling with Saul. He said, I will show him how many things it is necessary for him to suffer for the sake of my name. Well, now there's an interesting twist, isn't it? 
you go to the altar and the pastor says to you, now the Holy Spirit wants me to tell you everything you're going to suffer for following Jesus. Are you going to run screaming out of the church? Saul couldn't. He was blind. He was blind. For three days he hadn't eaten. He hadn't had anything to drink. He was just everything was shifting in his mind and his heart as God supernaturally changed him into an apostle. Hands were laid on him. His sight was returned and he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And immediately we find in verse 20, he's preaching the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Now, please tell me, where is the time necessary for a new Christian to overcome all of their sin? There's nothing in here about Saul having to overcome all of his sin, is there? He's changed. He's a new creature in Christ. He's been transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And what's he do? He goes out and starts preaching. Now, granted, he will be taken into the desert of Arabia, and there he will spend a few years being taught personally by Jesus. And that is a necessary part, not in the overcoming of sin, but in the maturing process, learning, being taught by the Holy Spirit, being taught by Jesus. Well, I want to begin to look at this Alexandra you want to jump in you said something yesterday when we were speaking about this passage that I thought was useful you talked about how Saul didn't have to choose to pray and fast for three days but you said he could have said that he was attacked by disciples of Jesus on the road to Damascus and they blinded him and he could have gone back to Jerusalem and been even more bitterly angry. So there was a voluntary yielding. It says later when he retells the story, I think in Acts 26, it says he was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. So I just wanted to pull that out that that Saul had to actually make that choice. God did not force him to submit, but he chose to submit. Yeah, when you look at uh, Acts, see if I can find it for you, Acts 26, um, the story is told with a little bit more detail. Um, And we learn a very important point about the Holy Spirit. He said, he's speaking to the king Agrippa, He saw a light from heaven beyond the brightness of the sun. This is in Acts 26, and now verse 14. Then all of us, having fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad is simply a sharp-pointed stick. So obviously... Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit was struggling with me. I knew what I was doing to the Christians was wrong. I was being poked by the stick of the Holy Spirit. 
I was being reprimanded for what I was doing. But I was determinedly going what I wanted to do. So now the Lord appears to him. Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus. Boy, must have been an earthquake through his soul when he recognized that this Messiah that he had rejected lurking in the back of his heart the certainty that he was the Messiah and yet being unwilling to accept that so the sharp stick of the Holy Spirit was poking him he says I am Jesus whom you are persecuting but you must get up and stand on your feet now isn't it interesting Alexandra that when Jesus would heal a man he would say get up stand up yes he would take up your bed go home because he was healed he was healed But somehow we've come to believe that a Christian is the same as everybody else, except they're forgiven. But they continue in their sickness. They continue in their sin sickness, but they're forgiven. And so the life of a Christian in America generally is about the same as the life of a pagan in America. That has to be addressed and has to be confronted. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Yes, it is. And has to change. Mm-hmm. But see, we don't want it to change because we love the things of darkness if we continue to walk in sin. And we've believed the lie that we can just accept Jesus. This is a lie. I will not believe this. It is not the teaching of Scripture. Alexandra, where do you find in Scripture anything that would indicate that a Christian should always be struggling for higher ground? Failing, struggling, failing, struggling. Something always coming out of my mouth that I don't like. As I've spoken to people on this question, um, people usually will turn to Romans 7 and they'll say, well, I want to do what's right, but I can't because there's sin dwelling in me. And then this is usually linked to a belief that they're bound by a sin nature that they were born with and so they don't actually have any choice about it. But that's very contrary to how the Bible speaks about sin and as if you as Ray, pastor ray was saying if you just read through the bible for what it says you see everywhere god assuming that we have the ability to choose what is right or to choose what is wrong and he holds us responsible for those decisions and that's why at the end of time when jesus comes back and there is the resurrection of of the dead of everyone who's ever lived that's why we're going to be judged by our works. We'll be done by, by what we have done. There's a, a scripture in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verse 11. This is 1 Corinthians, 10th chapter, verse 11. I urge you to come and read this carefully. These things happen to them, that is in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. 
So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? You remember Jesus said to the crowds, you must eat my body, it's real food, and you must drink my blood, it's real drink. In other words, he's saying, you must feast and get all of your strength from me. Verse 17, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, if you read the context of all of this, he's saying, look, you don't have to sit at the devil's table and struggle with sin anymore. But I would say he's even saying a lot more than that. It's a stark warning because if you if you remember when we spoke about a few weeks ago when we spoke about the early church's view of repentance, when you repented, it's just like this example you gave in Saul's conversion where he completely left his rage, his persecution, his murder, his breathing out threats and curses. It was gone and he was completely changed he was converted into a new person who preached the gospel who sacrificed everything that he had for the church who devoted his whole life even in fasting and persecution to building up the body of christ so that's the that's the view of repentance that we see in the bible and so this passage i would say it's not just saying oh you can live without sin but it's a strong warning He says these things happen as examples for us not to go back. Stephen actually, in the part of Acts you just read, just before he's stoned, he refers to the same story. This is Acts 7. He says, after the people of Israel were led into the desert, after they crossed the Red Sea, he says that our fathers would not obey God, but thrust him from them. And in their hearts turned back again unto Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So, And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, 
As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness. So these people, what we see is the crossing of the Red Sea. Paul refers to this later as well. He calls it they were baptized into Christ. So the baptism in the scripture, it's a symbol of conversion. That's when you thats when you truly repent and you enter the church, you become a Christian. And then after that, if you then choose to turn back to Egypt in your heart, if you choose to go to idolatry, if you reject Jesus, this is the warning, is that God will turn from you and give you over to worship the whole host of heaven. So that's why we see in the New Testament, we don't see this idea that Christians struggle with sin. We see they have repented of all sin, and now they're exhorted and encouraged and warned to persevere in the faith. Because there is no guarantee that if, you, if you've already received the mercy of God that was given to us in the crucifixion of his son, and then you reject that there's no guarantee that God will ever grant you another repentance. To go with that, in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. We're trying to persuade you today of the same thing the Apostle Paul was trying to persuade the Corinthian church of. Don't play with God. And verse 14, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again so therefore now we do not regard anyone from a worldly point of view though we once regarded christ in this way we do so no longer therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. If the new has not come in your life, you are not in Christ Jesus. It's that simple. It's terrifying. And what we find spread widely today in America that has resulted in such wickedness arising in the church and flowing into all of the culture is this permissive understanding that God loves me unconditionally and that somehow I'm going to make it okay. Over 80% of Americans, when polled, say that when they die, they're going to a better place. They're not. They're going to hell to burn eternally under the wrath of God because they have refused to be transformed into new creatures. I'd say the fundamental refusal 
the transformation into a new creature that comes out of submitting to God. So the fundamental refusal is a refusal to give up my life and to surrender everything to Jesus. Yeah, when people say to me, you know, I'm doing my best, Pastor. I just can't. I just can't overcome. You know, I keep going back to this pornography they say, or I keep going back to the fornication, or I keep going back to this lust in my heart for money. I have to be rich. I have to... It's my destiny to be rich. Well, they're not in Christ. They may be very religious, but they're not in Christ. And some of you may be struggling with this, not even realizing that it's because you've been given wrong instruction. So out of curiosity, I started to look on Google, how do I stop sinning? That was my Google search, how do I stop sinning? And I found that both Catholics and Protestants pretty much give the same advice. They say, you pray, you fast, you go to church. You know, the Catholics would say, you take the sacraments more regularly. That's all a works-based approach to salvation. The way that we overcome sin is by fully giving ourselves to Jesus Christ. And putting our faith in him. Yes. And so some of you listening, if you have been struggling with sin and you don't know why you haven't been able to get the victory, it's probably because you've been trying to do this whack-a-mole type of approach where you use different means. You say, well, if I pray more, if I fast, if I read the Bible, if I go to church, if I go to counseling, if I go to my anger management class, then I'll be able to overcome my sin. But that's not how we overcome sin. We overcome sin by faith in Jesus. And that faith is a total giving up of ourselves to him so that I no longer own any part of my life. My whole life belongs to Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit leads us into what we should do. And that's what we just saw in Acts, in the story you read. We see the Holy Spirit came to Ananias and gave him specific instructions. The Holy Spirit gave Paul a vision. The Holy Spirit gave Paul specific instructions about his mission to the Gentiles. So that doesn't happen until we repent. But then after we repent and we receive the Holy Spirit, then we are led by the Spirit. You know, I... I look at this and my heart is grieved because many of you have been humanistic. You've been self-help. You've been struggling in the bondage of sin, not realizing that we don't overcome sin by struggling against sin. If my focus is on my sin and I'm trying to white-knuckle through this sin, it'll just pop up somewhere else in my life. So one man wanted to gain the victory over cigarettes, so he gained the victory there, and it popped up in pornography. I mean, the essential heart of man is evil. It is wicked, and it must be changed. It's not to be catechized in religion. It's not to be taught the principles of God. It's not to be educated. It's to surrender to Jesus. And I wanted to give an example of what this kind of looks like in an extreme situation. So I was speaking to a Christian sister, and she was telling me about how she's a very young woman. 
she was telling me about how her previous marriage ended because her ex-husband was very into gay pornography and he was actually a pastor so she didn't know this before they were married they were together for three years before they were married they did not have sex before marriage because you know he said he was a pastor and he wanted to live clean and he knew that sex before marriage was wrong so she took him at his word and then within a month after they got married she discovered that he was sending nude photos of himself to other men that he was having texting and dating with other men in the church and that he was contracting sexually transmitted diseases from them and the church's response to this when she said you know we need to get help for this was this counseling approach that you're talking about so the church counselors said you just need to give him more time you just need to forgive him you just need to pray more well i realized as i was reading corinthians last night that this is not what paul said we should do with these types of people paul said if anyone who is called a brother so anyone who says he's a christian is a fornicator covetous idolater abusive person drunkard or an extortioner that we should the church should remove that person from the fellowship and so this is why we see such disaster happening in the church because with this counseling approach what it does is it just furthers the destruction so instead of the person's sin just affecting them it's now effect it was affecting this woman this woman the wife it was affecting all of the men in the church who he was pulling into it and certainly it was affecting his ability as a pastor and so we really see the danger of this counseling approach not only is it unbiblical but it does great harm to others in the body of christ and this again goes back to this implication there's this implication throughout the scripture that once you enter the church and you have been taught and you have the knowledge of God, if you then choose to so grossly rebel against God in such atrocious behavior, you're not given time to be, to be counseled and to try to repent again. Paul doesn't say give them time to repent. He says put them out of the church. Now, we don't know. Is it possible that some of these people later tried to come back and rejoin the church? We don't know. But we do know that sin was not allowed to just destroy and pillage and ravage the people of God in this way. And that's what the counseling model really gets us. But today in the church, by and large, the pastor makes allowance for people to not be in Christ but instead to take a position that we're all doing the best we can do. No one is going to enter heaven by doing the best they can do. And I think this is a case where churches need to hold their pastors accountable. I mean, no church has to put up with that. But when most of the people in the church are also walking outside of Christ, but they're very religious then the church becomes a place where we go for inspiration, entertainment, social life. It becomes a place not of holiness, 
but a place of social life. This has to change or America will be judged by God. This is what revival is about. Revival comes when a man or woman begins to recognize that they are religious, but they are sinning against the living God of heaven, and they are not in Christ. They are in darkness. And they've tried as hard as they can, and they haven't been successful. But that's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. The life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God. It's a crucifixion. It's it's an end to this worldly, religious, sinning life. It's over. It's done. I'm going to serve Jesus with all of my heart. Paul says, we implore you. We implore you. That's the strongest possible word. We beseech you. We beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, what does the word reconcile mean? Well, for my checkbook, it means that I go through all of my checks and the monies in the bank, and I compare it with what the bank says about my account, and then I see if I say the same thing about the amount of money that they say I have. When we agree, it's said to be reconciled. It's a technical, financial term. So to be reconciled with God means that I've come into full agreement with God concerning my condition before God, and I have agreed to be what God has called me to be. I am not in rebellion any longer. I am in tune with him. So Paul is saying, we beseech you, we beg you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the innocence of God. So as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. This is the call we're making today, Alexandra. That those who are called Christians, those who are religious, would not in vain seek after Jesus. That it would not be a waste of time and energy and they then go to hell. It means literally allowing the power of God to transform. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Right now is the time for you to make a decision. Will you serve the living God of heaven? Will you stop being religious and become crucified with Christ and give your life up to him totally, completely? No longer making peace with the world, but make peace with Jesus. Now, in 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, 
I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. If you're touching unclean things, now let me be very specific. If you're watching the television and enjoying the unclean things that are on it, if you're filling your life with the entertainment of this world, if you lust after the sports of this world, they are unclean. If you continue to touch that which is unclean, God will not ever receive you, and you will be shut out of heaven. And you'll say, but Lord, Lord, Look at what we did. We always went to the church and helped set up. We did this and we did that. We preached. We, And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Lawless ones. What's that word mean, Alexandra, in the Greek? You were looking at that last night. Yes, in the Greek it's anomia, I believe, mm-hmm. which means without law and it boils down to just a disregard or contempt for the law. So it says that sin is anomia, which is sometimes translated transgression of the law or lawlessness. So it's just another way of saying, if I'm disregarding the law, that means I'm breaking it. If I'm breaking the law, it's because I'm disregarding it. So, so we if, have to be subject to the law of God. We have to make ourselves subject. And the him. new covenant is that the law of God will be written in our hearts. Yes. It's not antinomianism where we throw the law out. It's the law of God is written in our hearts. Yes. So literally then what you're saying is that lawlessness may not even be deliberately choosing to disobey God. It may be just treating lightly the commands of God and being immersed in the world. No, it's always a choice. You can think about it. Pastor Jim gave the example with the speed limit. If you're driving, you know that there are speed limits. And you may choose to not look at the sign and drive whatever speed you want. And then maybe you could try to say, well, I didn't know what the speed limit was. But the fact is that when you're licensed, you've agreed to abide by the rules of the road. And so you're responsible to make sure you know the law and to follow it. So we can't just say, well, I didn't know any better. Plus, we have a conscience. So when when we reach the final judgment, we're going to be judged based on what our conscience testified was right and wrong. So, Even if we don't have a conscious awareness of the law of God. So we can be casual in disregard regarding the requirements of God, regarding the requirements of righteousness, and treat them as though they're not important, and treat as important all of the things of our important schedules, our lives here, but disregard the deep searching after Jesus and disregard the commands of Jesus to our heart, we're treating lightly then, and we are then lawbreakers. Yes. 
and under judgment. Yes. So what's so startling about this is, and and I urge all of you, read carefully the book of Jude. Uh, The writer, Jude, wanted to talk about the faith that's been given to us all. And then he says, but I, I can't. I have to address this heresy that is coming in amongst us that says... Uh, you're free to sin. And Jude says, no. But that's the common teaching of our day and the practice of our day. So that there's a revival meeting tonight. And we're going to do a very straight message, a call to righteousness. Many of you listening will not be there, not because it's too far to drive, but simply because you have other things that you want to do. You have little regard for the house of the Lord. You have little regard for coming apart and worshiping and hearing a straight word from the scriptures. You have a a heart for Monday night football, or you have a heart for dinner with friends, or you have a heart for the busyness of your work schedule. You don't have a heart for the things of God. You treat these things lightly as of no importance. That is in Scripture called lawlessness. And it's to those that Jesus said, Depart from me, I never knew you. The other side of that is if you do truly know Jesus, then it will be the natural inclination of your heart to seek him out and go as deep as you can. And then you would love to come to these revival meetings. It's time to be revived. It's time to come alive in Jesus. And somebody said, no, no. Pastor, it's not revival meeting, it's vival meeting because they've never walked in Jesus. They've always walked in religion, but not in Jesus. Well, we don't care if if you've never walked in Jesus and you're just religious or you have, but you've lost that walk. We still invite you to come because you will hear the straight gospel truth. So, We just have a few minutes left in this broadcast today. We meet tonight at 7.30, praise and worship. The doors open at 7. Doors will open at 7. And we're located at the All Saints Anglican Church. They're co-sponsoring with us, the National Prayer Chapel and All Saints. And the address is 14851. Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. You're welcome to come. You can find all of the information at revivalnow.church. That's a website. It's revivalnow.church. And we need people to volunteer still for ushering, for music, for all kinds of things, a prayer team. It's all on the webpage. It's all on the webpage. We had a wonderful meeting last Monday night 
the Lord God of heaven came and met us. It was a beautiful group of people, earnest, touched by the Spirit. I invite you to come. And Jesus is witnessing that you have been invited. And he is witnessing whether in your heart you are placing other things ahead of him. It's my job, it's Alexandra's job to come and speak this honest word that we've spoken today. And it is your job to decide what you're going to do with that. So we invite you to come. It will be very powerful and straight and spirit-filled. Come and enjoy and get right with Jesus and be crucified with him and see what suffering you're going to go through as you do the work of the Lord God in this culture. Now, we have just a minute left. We went to the post office this morning, and there was nothing at the post office. So we're eager to hear from you. I thank every one of you who has, who has mailed to us. Uh, thank you for your giving. The month is going to end very quickly, though. Write to us, please. National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley. Thank you for joining us. You can listen to this message at nationalprayerchapel.com. And our webpage for Revival? RevivalNow.Church. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. God bless you. God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Christ alone.